Hi everyone, it's Indy. Welcome to Lady in the Stacks, Season 2, Episode 3. No doubt many of you have heard about the $41 million Hunter's Point Library in Queens, New York. And perhaps you've even read some articles, such as the article in The Gothamist, as well as the more recent article in The New York Times, about some of the unfortunate design decisions that were made there. And many of you may have speculated about where the proverbial ball may have been dropped. Was it with the architecture firm? Was it with the library system itself? So today I'm going to be talking to Jack Mavora. Jack is the Vice President of Architecture for Canon Design, which is an international architecture firm. Now, this firm was not at all involved in the design and build of the Hunters Point Library. Jack deals almost exclusively, in fact, with the education side of libraries. But today he's joining me so that we can talk a bit about libraries and architects, how they work together, some of the processes that are involved in the design and construction of libraries of all kinds. And yes, we will be discussing Hunter's Point. So thank you for joining us. So welcome. And if you could just tell our audience a little bit about your background, just a little bit about sort of why you and I are talking about this uh, this topic. Sure, sure. Um, so I, I'm an architect. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I've been doing this for more years than I can count. I started in high school. So I've been doing this a very long time, and I've done almost every project typology. And for the past almost decade, I've been in higher education and focusing on libraries. Um, part of my love of doing this includes research. And so I read a lot and I listen a lot and I insert myself into communities. So I've been following a lot of librarians online and social media. And that just kept expanding, expanding, expanding. And that's how I came across you. And that's how we ended up here today. Um, so um, coincidental with our finding one another for this, for this podcast, uh, there was a an explosion of attention on a particular public library in New York City. <laughs> it, the timing just seemed perfect. So here we are to talk about libraries in general and specifically about design, uh, the process and how what we do can help uh, libraries do what they do. Fantastic. So your uh, my understanding is that your your firm deals almost exclusively in education. Um, so if you could sort of talk about, I think that a lot of the people who are listening to my podcast come from a public library um, background. So if sure. you could talk a little bit about sort of some sort of what the differences are, or at least just sort of a broad overview of the fact that they're not the same and the same process does not go into every single one of them. Right, right. Well, our firm does almost everything. Anything you can imagine that is in the built environment, from hospitals to to public schools to commercial, our firm does. I happen to be in the education group. Um, so going back to libraries, a library is not a library is not a library. There's public libraries, there's academic libraries, and even within that there are academic and academic research libraries. There's K through 12. Um, and really the difference is the community that it serves right, right? Uh, which which makes sense you know what what are the needs of this 
institution in order to serve its community, its environment. Um, the academic library will focus more on research, on collections, um, having access to um, original manuscript, you know, all of the things that an academic would find important. Right. So those collections tend to grow exponentially. Um, so it's a question of space. Right. You know, or how, how do we accommodate this? Public um, serves a public community. Um, the collections may not be as large and they probably change more often. Um, uh, you know, people are looking for the latest fiction. People are looking for computer access. So it's, it's a public service right. uh, that, that, that um, serves a community. Um, it, it can be a safe haven, you know, in times of, of natural disaster. Right. I mean, well, it, especially, it really like, especially here in yes. Florida. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, it, it definitely has a broader circumference, a, a broader reach than uh, what uh, uh, academic might serve. And then there's K through 12, which is a place that I have not worked in. Um, I've spoken with, there's someone in our, in our firm who does that exclusively, K-12, and that's much more integrated, obviously, into the program of the institution, of the school right. itself. Right. It's not a standalone entity. Right. It is um, not unlike the higher ed, it serves every department that is part of an institution on higher ed that is part of the school on the K-12, um, but they are different. They, I, and I know that you do um, a lot of children programs, so there's a lot of that. There's the story time question. There's the how do students use this? Is it just a place to put kids and you expect them to sit and be quiet for uh, an hour of the day and then they go back to their classroom? Um, well, and it's and, also it's also curriculum more curriculum based, um, and a lot of uh, school libraries become genreified. So they organize their materials in very different ways, um, sometimes than a public library would. Right, right. And um, in our firm, we have you know every, there are specializations, you know, subject matter experts we're called. Right. And uh, so. We're always ahead of the curve or try to keep ourselves there. So we're not just showing up to provide a building, to provide a space. We do the research to understand what our clients' needs are. So when we go in there, we can have an intelligent conversation. You know, our role isn't to tell the institution how to do what they do. Our role is to listen to what they want to do and help them do that. Right. Um, you know, I can think of you know, the, probably the three most recent higher ed um, groups I've worked with and they are wildly different in how they view their library and their collections and their sizes are different. So it's, it's always new, which I like. Right. And you have to anticipate, I would imagine where it's going. So for example, when you talk about the academic libraries that the collections are going to expand. And so you need to anticipate that um, when you plan mm -hmm. a, a public library, that may not be the case because as we're getting new materials, we're also getting rid of, um, some materials in, especially in certain areas of our libraries. So I would imagine there has to be a lot of forward thinking in, in what you're doing. Yes. Right. And, and, you know, a building is not, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, the, just to give you some idea, the, the normal course, the average course of a project from notice to proceed on design might be three years. It's about a year give or take of design and then two years, give or take of construction, and then you occupy. Got it. There's also work that happens before that. Okay. There's the feasibility study, there's the concept design, and we're being brought into that more and more. So for us, these projects become four or five year projects. 
Um, you know, I've been working in one institution since 2011, mm. um, you know, from master planning to now execution, things are under construction. So it takes a very long time. And so yet you're correct. There's, there are projections if you're doing this, uh, smartly, uh, 10 year, 15, 20 year projections. What is this going to look like right. so that you're not done and already behind? Right, right, right. right. You're already out of room or actually we weren't going to keep all these books anyway. And now we've got more space than we know what to do with. What are we, what are we going to become? Uh, right? That's a big question in the, in the library universe. <laughs> what, you know, what is, what is, what are we now? Right. If books are going this way and they're being cleared out of libraries in some cases, what do we become? So it's constant conversation. So you mentioned the the sort of average lifespan of the project mm. and, and that, you know, that can change. But what do you think about 20 years? What do you think is, um, so let's just jump in and talk about Hunter's Point. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> because, um, so the New York Times article just came out and um, yeah. I, you and I have talked about it briefly and it, it's, it's fascinating and I think it's fair. Um, and mm -hmm. and I think it I sort of talks about the role of both the library and the architectural firm in um, some of the maybe unfortunate decisions that were made um, in this project. So, and I understand that you're not directly involved in this project and you're not directly involved in, in public libraries, but, um, you know, I want to kind of highlight some points and, and see what you sure. think of them. Um, so... <laughs> There, there, I wrote a lot of notes and a lot of them um, have uh, WTF in front of them. But um, so, so I think one of the things that um, bothered me was um, that, you know, and I think this bothers a lot of, I think this bothers all public librarians is mm. when, when you decide that your library staff can access these books now you've taken away that whole element of browsing and that serendipitous mm. discovery of mm -hmm. materials. And I, I understand from this article that they were sort of looking to make sure they met the minimum requirements of the ADA perhaps. Um, but I'm gonna kind of ask you to speculate and this is pure speculation. And I, I want everyone to understand that we are just speculating. We are not part of, you're not part of the process. Um, right. But what are some of your thoughts about sort of why that element might be left out, why an architectural firm and a library coming together might have decided that that process wasn't important? Yeah, um, I don't I find it hard to believe that either side of this equation didn't think it was important and didn't think it through. Um, now I'm an optimist. I'm always giving people the benefit of the doubt, but, uh, there are so many people involved in a project of this scale that, um, it is hard to believe it wasn't discussed. Uh, I think that the area that we're talking about in this library is when you first walk into the main lobby, there is a, there is a series of tiers, um, that the, a main stair takes you up to the next level. Um, and of those tiers, and I think there are four of them, uh, the lowest one is accessible from the from the elevator. The other three are not, right? They're accessible from landings. 
and it's a place to step off the stair and sit. There's a there's a bench on you know a, a counter on one side where you can work, and behind you are stacks. Mm-hmm. So how they got to putting a part of a collection on those tiers that are only accessible by the librarian, by somebody asking for a book on it, I have no idea. Um, uh, I think that there is a good use for that space. Stacks may not be the right use. Um, um, There are a lot of restrictions, I think, that were, that are, were placed on this project. You know, I'm, I'm, it's hard for me to work through why its footprint is what it is. Okay. You know, it's a pretty small floor plate. You know, the, the area of the, each floor is small, made smaller by the fact that it's, it's a circuitous walk that you walk, that you go up around the perimeter and there's a big hole. It's all, it's essentially an atrium space. Okay. Um, so I think they, you know, there, I have a lot of questions about the design that Right. I don't have answers no, to. No, and that's okay. But, and I, I just sort yeah. of wanted to get your and the, and the fact that the fact that the library this is a two-sided coin. I think the library responded and responded quickly. No fanfare, no real pushback. Mm-hmm. It was this is what we thought, but we moved the books. Right. They are now on another floor, completely accessible. Everybody can get to them. Right. So they had the room for it. Mm-hmm. So the, was this a question of how do we program the books now that we have the space, mm-hmm. or was the, the location of the books discussed during design. Mm. I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. Right. Um, and interestingly, when you learn a little bit more about the, the library itself, below that tier, below those those tiers, is an auditorium. It's a meeting room. Oh. So the the shape makes sense because, you know, it, it's a ceiling going away from you as it gets closer to the stage. Right? Okay. So I don't know if one drove the other. Mm. Uh, if they just found a way to marry the two spaces and it worked out. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns on how it got there. Right. But I think they solved it and solved it quickly. Now the question is, what do you do with those three tiers? You know, what do you, right. that are do you be- get That are beautiful but empty, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, people are still using them for the for the work counter. Right. There's power. There's, you know, they can sit. In, um, and they could take the stacks out and put soft seating there, make them more usable for this, for reading, for sitting and enjoying. I mean, you're you're looking through a huge window over the East River yes. back towards Manhattan. Yes. I, it is a beautiful space, um, but its use was was mishandled, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I like this this article in the New York Times. Um, this was uh, from the fifth of November, and. What I what I appreciate is the fact that they did acknowledge that the the library officials were part of this process. You know that they they felt that it's in compliance. The librarians can do this. Um, you know this was not a statement that came out from the architectural firm, although their comments are a little um, <laughs> upsetting. Uh, so. So let's so let's go there. Um, so I think when I shared this article with my coworkers, um, the the big, the, the I think the line that got the most attention, um, these two lines actually, uh, Chris McVoy, who is a senior partner at the architectural firm Stephen Hall, said, "To be honest, we hadn't thought. Okay, we have to provide an exact, exactly equivalent browsing experience." He said. This will be a new standard for libraries, and that's great. But th- that doesn't mean it's a flaw in the design. It's an evolution. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you counterpoint that with the library's response, which was just move the books. Right. It's, <laughs> well, it and it's, it's an incredibly ableist statement. Yeah. And uh, so the, it's a struggle, you know, um, because the, the, the stakeholders, the people who are involved in a project of this scale and this, um, the, the, this public a project um, are, are numerous. You have to deal with, as you do on all projects, budget, schedule, all of those things. And so sometimes, so what he's referring to there is the uh, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so th that is a, uh, that's a civil rights law. It's not a building code, but it's one of the regulations that we address when we design spaces, along with life safety codes, along with other jurisdictional requirements. And those jurisdictional requirements, all of these included, are minimum standards, right? And a number of times you're, you're, I always call them the dials. You're dialing needs across the board because you, you, a budget has been established usually, a schedule has been established, and then the design is progressing and you're tuning these dials to make sure that those first two things stay in line and things go up and down. So a, a really simple one from the building code, life safety code, you have to have a certain number of toilets depending on the sex, depending on the population expected in the building, et cetera. There's a minimum standard. Okay. You could go more, you know, you could handle it in any number of ways, but the guy writing the check is going to say, why do I have 50 toilets when I only need 10? Get rid of those 40 toilets. So, Hey, look at what we just saved. So, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act allows for, um, accommodation, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in accessibility. Now, the problem with that is if you're doing a brand new building ground up, it really shouldn't be debating things like this. You should be able to make it work fully. Whereas, you know, we're working with New York public library. Um, and, uh, the, so you're dealing with existing buildings, Okay. existing buildings you can make accessible, but there are going to be restrictions that don't normally exist with a new building. Right. All right. You're dealing. So that, that's where the accommodation comes in. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, just last night, somebody created a Twitter account being the library. They call it Hunter's Point Library. Oh. And so they, they are the library. <laughs> and it's actually funny. Uh, you know, I don't know what it's going to accomplish, but it is funny. And somebody posted... I think in response to this article um, about the accessibility and somebody else jumped in with another whole project, Stephen Hole project mm. and a photo and said, yeah, this must be their, essentially, this must be their typical MO because look, here's an auditorium and there's no integrated accessible seating. Mm. And normally I don't participate in these conversations, but I thought this is how it happens, right? This is complete misinformation. And so I wrote back and in a, in a, as benign a way as I could. Hey, actually, I think you're mistaken. You know, when I walked in to that space, this is where I found it on the upper tier. And I think this is how it's handled at the lower tier, but I don't recall. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. The person who originally posted it came back and they obviously are very much engaged in the ADA. And they said, oh yeah, right. Well, so it, the ADA allows for this. And they sort of cited some, some things from it. And that was the end of it. Hmm. But I think social media 
I may be getting off the question here. Sorry, but social media serves. Yeah, social media serves a a a, a great purpose. I think that it's this kind of backlash, you know, this kind of public attention that changes things like the ADA, improves them. Mm-hmm. Um, we should think about this more and more. We're talking about a public library. Public libraries are full of uh, people that range from the very able body to the not. A lot of spaces do, but public in particular, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that there was a lot of oversight in, I mean, uh, you know, there was a lot of, not oversight, um, but uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There were some missed opportunities here for mm-hmm. the, the expected population of this library. Well, I I can tell you from a library, from a public library standpoint, I think one of the things that we sort of viscerally respond to is the idea of a lack of accessibility. The instant we feel like people don't have that access, we just sort of get our backs up. And I can't speak for all librarians. You know, our, our initial response was there's no access for people who are in a wheelchair or people who can't walk up steps. Yeah, right. All right. Um, I think that drove some of the processes. I think what I'm trying to say, I think that that drove some of the outrage. Oh, and it's the outrage is completely understandable. Um, And I think that the public attention, the public outcry, the library's response were all good. Uh, And I think that this will improve things moving forward. Somebody's going to pay attention to this on the jurisdictional side and say, you know what, maybe this limitation that we um, allow for shouldn't be allowed for. It just doesn't make any sense anymore in this day, you know, um, and universal access should be considered more heavily. Now, I know on our, you know, in our um, practice, we have the SMEs I mentioned earlier, uh, subject matter experts, people who really focus on typologies. They're looking at accessibility um, across the board. It's not just, um, you know, the physical restrictions that most people associate with uh, with um, the ADA. Okay. Now, the first thing most people think is wheelchairs. Right. Well, there's there's a whole right. There's neurodiverse right, is is is, in, is this new and uh, neurodiverse population um, is the term that's currently being used, and it goes everything from um, autism spectrum disorder uh, to uh, Tourette syndrome to you know how is it that space is designed to accommodate everyone? Right. You know, is it multiple? spaces and the light is different the colors are different mm. the sound is different you know or the oral experience a URL, um, uh, of a space is different here than it is over there um, and that's so it is being paid attention to in the design world okay um, um, in fact i think there was a report recently released a study done very recently on exactly this neurodiverse workforce um so uh, it is a consideration. It is something that's looked at. Um, I think that, again, having walked the Hunter's Point Library, there was an effort to make everything as accessible as possible. Um, this moment, though, which is the signature moment, mm. fell on its face. Mm. And unfortunately, it's the signature moment. Everyone walks in and goes, holy cow. <laughs> what is that? How am I supposed to do that? Um, and, you know, the, the, the elevator is tucked over here. 
know, the one elevator, which is also a little strange. You know, it's a vertical line. And it's small. It's a very small (laughs) elevator. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mentioned earlier the circuitous route that you take. Just think Guggenheim, but small. Okay. Right. And, 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 and fractured. Sometimes you're standing on, on a, on a, on a bridge there and you're like, "Uh, how do I get there? And it's not, it's not as clear as the Guggenheim, which is just a spiral. Um, so even those paths are not very forgiving. They're very narrow. Hmm. Right. Um, so it, yeah, there are a lot of things that happen there that I'm not completely, I, I can't. Explain. Right. Sure. So, um, so, um, yeah, accessibility is, is something that is, um, more and more being paid attention to across the spectrum of what that means. So on this um, theme of on this theme of evolution, right? We're going to sort of take it a different direction, um, a sure. less a less ableist direction. So, yeah. uh, you know, what about the, let's talk about the browsing experience in general, right? Because you work, yeah. if we look at different libraries, it is a different experience. And you sort of touched on this at the very beginning of the interview. Um, you know, this is all changing; it is evolving, right? So yeah. collections are increasingly. Um, becoming digital. Yep. Uh, they're not static. Even in a public library, they're not static. Um, can you speak a little bit about how, as an architect, you view that and how you um, consider that when you're working on a project? Sure. And, you know, it doesn't end at accessibility, um, the question of browsing and serendipity. Um, that is the very argument that is made by faculty when library academic libraries decide to take books out of the browsable stacks and put them into places we call them book boxes they are high base storage places mm-hmm. where they can maintain a collection but they keep them over there right they're they're well protected you can have one within 24 hours all you need to do is tell me what you need we'll go get it we'll deliver it to your desk all right that's so the question of browsing and serendipity comes up a lot okay um, and I understand it. Um, uh, and I, it, a lot of it has to do as you um, put out there, the type of collection. Physical collections require more physical access. The browsing is um, static, is analog, I'll say. Right? You're walking on a stack. Um, and of course, that serendipity is dependent on the the cataloging system, right? Somebody else has already decided what's next to what next is what next to what. Whereas if you walk into a bookstore, it's, stuff's going to be all over the place. I, you know, I found things literally serendipitously because it just happened to be somebody thought library architecture. There's the book, mm-hmm. and this thing had nothing to do with architecture and everything to do with collections and how they're growing and what are we going to do about it. And this was in 1962. This study, oh. and we're still we're still debating these questions. Um, and they were looking forward to the digital digitization digitization of collections. Um, so, and it's changing, as you say. Uh, it, it, some collections are going away completely. You know, I've worked at one institution where they are going 100% digital. Yeah. That's their decision. That's they, the yep, and they're donating their collection to um, uh, a service. It's not. They're not just tossing them out. Oh, wow. They're donating. Them. Yeah, um, and that's how they want their operation to work right now they are a single library on a much smaller campus it's a big library so now they have lots and lots of floor plate right this was earlier we were talking what are we now right we don't have books not 
traditional sense. Right, right. But we have lots right. and lots of access to lots and lots of, of uh, information. And even across, I'm sorry, I'm going to go off the rail here a second. Even across the academic world, they are, uh, there is a movement to making collections universal. You know, I think, I forget what I saw the number was, but I'm going to make something up here. There's about a billion volumes in North America in academic collections, something like that. And I think the determination is that 50 million of those are unique. Mm. That means 950 million volumes are duplicated. Mm. And so there are a number of institutions that are getting together thinking, okay, we're going to have our own specializations here, right? We have a, a, a special collections that you, that's unique to this part of the country or this community, whatever it is. Obviously, we're not touching that. And which of these volumes do we just need one or two of so that we six institutions together don't have to have that many duplicate um, um, copies? And then somebody who's at your institution who wants this library just says, I want this book. And it shows up at your library you know, the next day or two days, whatever it is, and there it is. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily address the browsing experience, um, but it does address access to collections. Right. Yeah. Uh, browsing Browsing's changing. You know, I'm, I think I, I have a teenage son about to go to university, and watching how he does research and learns things on his own is fascinating to me because it's not the way I did it. It's not the way I do it. And he shows up with things that I had. How did you, how do you know that? Mm-hmm. And he sits me down and he shows me, I'm like, it's amazing. And it's all digital. Yeah. yeah. Right. They, um, and I think that's good. We have to, you know, our generation has to get used to that and find a way to make that work. Right. Um, and so that's, that's why I, I talked to the SME in our firm who does K-12. We'll, we Going back to the process of, of design, when we go and meet with uh, an institution, whether it's libraries, athletics, rec, academic, we want as many stakeholders at the table as we can get. Sure. That's not just the people who run the facility. It's, it's security. It's housekeeping. It's you know uh, the people who use the building. That's one of the reasons I like libraries is – Every department uses the library somehow. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to them and find out how they use it. Um, so we do that a lot, and we'll talk to students, obviously. And I mentioned earlier how long it takes to do a project. If I'm talking to a freshman, they're likely to be graduating by the time the project I'm working on is done. Oh, right. right? And certainly the upperclassmen are gone, long gone. So I'm interested in the K-12 population. How are they doing things? Right. Right. What are they bringing to the institution as opposed to necessarily what does the institution expect them to bring with them? Hmm. Uh, because, again, the population and how they do things is changing and tra- changing a lot faster than we know, right. especially in, the, right, in how they use digital information. Um, when we interviewed, I won't name institutions because I haven't talked to them about doing right. this. So, right. you know, I, at one institution we were interviewing students and there was a third year English major, literature, and she says, I have never checked out a book or even taken one off the shelf in this library, this library we were talking about, but I'm here all the time. Yeah, but I'm here all the time. I love this building. Mm -hmm. I sit here in the main reading room and I read, and this is where I like to be. And I'm, well, what do you read? Well, a book I get at the bookstore. 
Um, the rest of it is done digitally. Yeah. You know, textbooks are changing, access to information. It's all, it's shared. So um, there's, a, there's an interesting book by uh, John Palfrey called Bibliotech that you, your listeners might want to check out. It's, it's, uh, and he's talking exactly about that, why libraries matter um, and uh, how, how we're going to move forward digitally. You know, what, what are the options? Because there are some fascinating experiments in browsing digitally, mm-hmm. putting, putting RF tags on books and walking into a library and you have your device and you have the entire library in your, in your hand. And you can browse it any way you want. You know, perhaps you could put in a subject and all of a sudden, boom, there's all these texts, these, these, these volumes. And there's serendipity there because there are things on the list that you may not have considered. Sure. Yeah. So it's, it's going in a, in a direction that's um, exciting. And then we as architects have to figure, okay, what is it that we're doing? How do we, you know, because we don't necessarily participate in programmatic issues Correct, as right. much as accommodating program. And if it's going digital, what does our space look like? Right. What is it that we're right. providing? You know, is it a, a coworker of mine has a great line that you can make a space so multi-purpose it has no purpose. Yeah. And it, we have to be a cognizant of that, mm-hmm. not just make big rooms, with lots of chairs and tables, just to make big rooms with lots of chairs and tables. Right. You know, what is the experience of going to a library going to be? Yeah, I you know, it's it's funny. I'm, I, I think that it's so interesting to hear your perspective from an academic library because uh, you're you're right. The when people go to an academic library, they're looking for specific information, I would imagine, yeah. generally. Right. Generally. And, yeah. that, and that does happen at library at public libraries, too. Um, yeah. And I think that maybe the browsing issue, it's not that it's more important. It's just different. It's yeah. just a very different thing. We still yeah. have a lot of physical books at my library. We, we offer mm-hmm. digital. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm constantly amazed at, it's kind of a separate subject, but I'm kind of, I'm, I'm always kind of amazed at how many patrons don't realize the budget spend. <laughs> digital resources. So they're right. like, oh, that's free. Oh, well, it's free, right? it's, yeah, it's really not. Why do I but have you... to, why do I have to put a hold on something, yeah. you know, digitally? Yeah. Well, and um but, yeah. So we don't we deal with digital, but not to the same degree um, sure. that an academic library is, would. And I mean, I agree with you about K through twelve because it's research is a whole different thing now. And I always laugh when I have a parent come in and they're looking for something with their child for a school project. They're looking for mm-hmm. a resource, and and I will ask them, does it have to be a book? Well, right. I would like them to know how to. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, and I, I, I sort of understand that, but in this day and age, I don't really think that. I don't think yeah. this is important because that's not what they're necessarily going to be doing. Right, and I, and again, I have like you, I have one source, mm-hmm. and that's one son, <laughs> who, after everything I just said, loves books. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy is always reading. Yeah. I mean, he devours them. He's you know, and it might be just living by example because uh, you know again if i could show you this place it's <laughs> it's books and music um and so he's got his own bookshelf and he's it's collections growing and he loves it so there's there's this i keep digging I, i'm trying to figure out this this dichotomy it's just kind of both and mm-hmm. you know not either or um and that you know even i can live that way now i find the path to information digitally is just as serendipitous as browsing a shelf. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have found things that 
I go down these rabbit holes at night usually when I'm reading a story online and it takes me to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, and I find things that I would never have considered going to for source information on this that, oh yeah, there it is. You know, this, this is amazing mm-hmm. um, because it, it's, it's not directly connected to what I was looking for. Right. Um, and uh, and the, on the public side, you know, there, there's a public library that I was in recently um, doing a pre-proposal walkthrough, they call it. When they, when they put out an RFP, you get to go down and meet the people who okay. are asking for services. And this was a big, huge old building with nothing in it. They had gotten rid of most of their books. Um, a lot of the space was taken up by tables and computers, right? And this is serving a community that is in need of this. And it was active. I mean, the place was full of people. Mm. It was it was great to see. And it was something I wasn't used to seeing because I feel almost exclusively an academic. And so, you know, my mind had to switch off the academic side and pay attention exclusively to the public side and say, okay, what are the needs here? What does this community need? Why are there very few books and even fewer periodicals now. And I asked those questions and, and they talk through their process and what they find they need for the public, you know, the surrounding community, because it's people who walk there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more often than not, they're, they're not, they don't have cars. Um, they might be able to take a bus from further away, but largely it's the people who live right here in this particular radius. Okay. And they're coming here for teen programs, for a place to be during the day because they're homeless, uh, a place to do the kind of research the public will do. Um, and they're, they're trying to figure out themselves, how do we adapt this grand old space to that use? Right? Because the stacks are limited now. Right. Um, and it's, it's, you know, for me, it's, it's solving a puzzle. It's, you know, it's, it's what I like to do. So, uh, so is there anything else that you would like to share with us either about, um, you know, what you do or about um, Hunter's Point or anything that you feel like is really important for us to know that we didn't necessarily touch on. And we touched on a lot, admittedly. Yeah. Well, I think, again, going back to what we do, how we do it and how that serves um, your needs, right? the client's needs, the user's needs, is make sure that you're part of the process. And the process is much larger than most people who aren't in the industry realize um, the the process of either doing a renovation or starting a new library starts much earlier than necessarily quote unquote the design process um, there is a feasibility level study that's going to be done by who's ever running this uh, project to find out can we do it and how much is it going to cost and part of that is going to be a concept level design, right? You have to lay out square footage. We have to know how big the building's going to be. We have to know, in, in the case of libraries, what's the collection? You know, that's a physical reality. So the building has to be just so big in order to accommodate the collections, in addition to the people who use the collections, which is who, which is who we're really designing it for. We're not just designing a, a big building to put books in. Right. People have right. it, right? Um, and so you want to be involved from the very start. Because at that point, budgets are set. Uh, so right, so you, once design has started, they will likely hand a, an RFP, a request for proposal to a design firm and say, 
we need a building that is about this size and will cost this much. Mm. All right, you've already started with a, a, a level. All right, here's here's your data line. So you want to be part of the conversation and make sure that the people who are putting that together understand what the needs are of people using the building. That includes the public for public libraries. It includes the librarians and the staff because they are in there daily. Mm-hmm. You know, what does it mean to have to push a book cart <laughs> from here to there? Yeah. You know, they, right? um, and then remain part of the uh, conversation. So outreach is something that we do. Um, and and insist upon. Um, the earlier the, the decisions, the better and less costly they are. Right? Because if I have to make a decision way down here while we're about to go into construction documents, right? So the phases are schematic design, design development, then you go into construction. Decisions made at schematic design are quote unquote cheap. Right? Because right? right now we're still pushing things around trying to figure out where things go. Do you have everything you need? There may be a box already defined. It's this big. So we can only fit so much in it, but what are we fitting in and how? If we get down here to construction documents and somebody decides, oh, actually we need more storage. Okay, well, that means you gotta give up something else mm-hmm. because that storage is gonna take up space that we, you know, unless you're gonna make the building bigger and every square foot of building costs right. whatever, right. $250 a square foot to just do the math. Um, so from our side, we, we push as hard as we can to get as much stakeholder involvement as possible. And what that means is data, data collection, gathering experiences, we'll do day in the life exercises. You know, a lot of people haven't thought about what their day is. Mm-hmm. And we will say, okay, here, here's, a, here's a, a diagram of the building you're in, if it's a renovation, or a diagram of the proposed building, the building you're in. Um, what does your day look like? All right. Doors open. You go to your office. Then what? Right. I never think, right. about, I never think about it. Exactly. And more, more often than not, the, the, the response is, oh, my God, I, I, I go between these two places. I know the rest of the library, but I touch these two and that's it. Right. And, and, and so there's a that's good because there's an assumption sometimes you're working against people's idea of what they do versus what they actually do. And then you're done with design and they're like, this doesn't work for me. Well, okay, because we didn't we didn't start where we should have, which is what is your day really consist of? And, and one, can we fix that because you want it to be something else? Or two, is that really it? And therefore, let's focus on that. Right. What, what can improve that day for you? Um, and in the end, there are decision makers. Right? Um, there is somebody who holds the checkbook who's going to tell us, yeah, that would be great, but we can't afford it. Right. And then, then we have to work through it. Um, and... That is it. You know, that to me is the most important part is making sure you're involved. So if there is administration that needs to know you want to be involved, say so. And that way we can get input. Uh, it is it is a skeptical group that I usually will walk into when mm-hmm. the entire library staff is there. You know, I've been talking to administration for a while and then I walk in and there's 25 people sitting there and they're just looking at me like, yeah, we've done this before. And <laughs> And we're not expecting much. And then by the time we're done, they're so excited because we get them involved, right? It's hands-on. It's moving things around on plans. Um, You know, point here. Tell me what's good about this, bad about that. Um, And, you know, it it will range anywhere from the big picture, how to 
how do things arrive to my building and move from loading dock to stack eventually to small things i don't have enough power at my desk there are not enough outlets right it's, there's not enough data ports that whatever it is the signal in this corner of the building is horrible i can't use my phone so you know you learn quickly about what's important to people my feet are always cold what is the deal <laughs> and um and that's the other that the other part is that you know understanding what a design team is working with you know we we pay attention to everything from the big strokes the the spaces to the thermal qualities of the skin to the door handle types to does the bathroom have a door on it or not have a door on it because of security reasons. Okay. If it doesn't have a door on it, where do we want this located so that people at the front desk aren't listening to toilets flush all day long? You know, <laughs> so it's, it's a, it's a, it's an exercise and there's a reason it takes, you know, almost a year um, to just design, to put on paper, what's going to eventually be built. Um, and we welcome input. The more input, the better. Well, I think that this will answer a lot of questions for um, a, a lot of people who don't understand the process. And, and clearly, you know, you are speaking from your experience, but it, it seems like it's pretty applicable across the board in terms of how uh, libraries are planned and the stages that are involved and the thought, the thoughtfulness that goes into um, that whole process. So I wanted to thank you very much for joining us today. Um, thank you. This was fun. If you would like to follow Jack on Twitter, I will include his Twitter handle and other information in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, I'll be seeing you in the stacks. <laughs> <laughs>